I got one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Kimberly. Uh, man, love being a part of Surge and so grateful for the chance today to share some thoughts. Um, the Beauty of Christian Sexual Ethics, the title for today, I found often when we approach the topic of sex, we tend to approach it through the lens of truth, which is foundational and important. What does God say about it? Uh, but I want to try and supplement that today with uh, two other angles that I think are also equally foundational, that of beauty and of goodness. Uh, truth, beauty, and goodness all hold together in God. He is true, good, and beautiful, and everything God does, uh, those things go in here. And so I want to at how can sex be uh, a window into the goodness and beauty of who God is and what God does. <clears throat> Part of the backdrop uh, working on uh, the next book is on this topic of sex and sexuality. And so that's some of the backdrop for some of the things we'll be looking at today. But the big idea for the book would be uh, that sex can either be an icon or an idol. Right? Like either a window we look through that gives us a glimpse into the glory and goodness of God or a mirror that reflects back our own selfishness, brokenness, and destruction. Uh, what can it be an icon or a, of or a window into? Uh, four main things uh, that I'm wanting to explore in the book. So the four things are the structure of creation, the nature of salvation, the abundance of the kingdom, and the identity of God. Uh, but today, I want to focus on just the first one, the structure of creation, and focusing on how I believe sex can be a window into the kind of structure and order of reality and creation that God has given us as a good and beautiful gift. Uh, heads up, I may see a few things today that might come across a little blunt or uh, may even sound a little crude or whatever. My goal is not to be kind of shock jockish or whatever. Uh, the goal is just to be direct and hopefully cover a lot of ground quick uh, in the hopes of reclaiming kind of a, a holy vision of sex as driven by this theme of beauty as well. All right, so first thing here. <clears throat> sex is a window into the structure of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, we're all familiar with kind of this epic opening passage into the drama of Scripture. And uh, heaven and earth, sometimes today we can think of those as like, okay, heaven's where I go when I die, and earth's where I live today, um, as these kind of two disconnected, disparate entities. Uh, but in the biblical story, we find that heaven and earth are not disconnected from one another, but are made with and for one another for the life of the world. I like the language of N.T. Wright, who says, uh, they are twin interlocking spheres designed to go together. So heaven and earth are not disconnected entities, but are uh, twin interlocking spheres designed with and for one another. And they are not alone. Uh, in Genesis 1, it uh, gives us three foundational complementary pairs made with and for one another. That of heaven and earth, of land and sea, and of night and day. And these four spheres, or these three spheres or pairs, uh, structure creation. Heaven and earth provide the vertical dimension, kind of the up and down. Land and sea provide kind of the horizontal dimension, side to side. And night and day provide the temporal dimension of time. And these, each of these pairs are made with and for one another. And I would suggest to you the most beautiful moments in creation happen when the two become one. Let's take a look at what I mean by that. If we start with the land and the sea, land and sea as a complementary pair, <clears throat> there is something beautiful about the ocean, kind of being out on a ship. The land is amazing, the ocean's amazing, and yet something majestic happens when the two come together. There's just something about the beach, the coast. Right? I love a philosopher P. 
Peter Kreeft puts it this way. He observes, the shore is the most popular place on earth. Waterfront property is the most expensive property anywhere in the world. Because that's where the sea and the land meet, that's where man and woman meet. The land without the sea is kind of boring. Desert, we know that well here, right? The sea without the land is kind of boring. When are we going to land the ship? But the place where they meet, that's where all the action is, and that's where we want to be. Creased point, there's something majestic about the beach where the land and the sea come together. Now, I would push back a little bit on his claim that the ocean and land are boring on their own. I think, actually, there's a romantic beauty to the desert, right? And sailors write sonnets about the majesty of the ocean. And yet, I think he's on to something when he says there's something powerful that happens when these two become one. We shell out top dollar for the oceanfront view, whether on the sunkissed beaches of California, the rocky shores of Northern Ireland, or the coastal resorts of Phuket off the coast of Thailand. <clears throat> but these are just, uh, you know, I suggest this magic works on smaller scales too. Like these are just kind of the biggest arena where the colossal continents kind of tangle with their tectonic match in oceanic bodies of water. But if we zoom in closer on smaller scales as well, we find that where water and soil meet is a place where life emerges. So historically, cities have sprung up along rivers. Uh, cabins tend to sprout around lakes, and oases rise up in the desert. Where water and land meet is where life emerges. And not only life, but beauty. It's not only a place where life emerges, when land and sea come together, but also a place where beauty erupts. And so uh, when river and rock caress, we find some of the most beautiful uh, spaces and places in, in creation. Uh, what is the Grand Canyon but rock carved by water? What are waterfalls but water traversing rock? As author Brett McCracken observes, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, water and rock together are nature's most beautiful artistic pairing. Water can erode and mold and smooth rock, Rock can guide and contain and filter water. Their wrestles are necessary and good, and they create beauty. So the mingling of these material elements in a sort of marriage, so to speak, where they come together and wrestle with one another as one, is mutually formative and forms and shapes each in a way that provokes beauty and splendor. As McCracken goes on, we're drawn to these places. Whether glaciers or cascades, snow-capped mountains or geysers, the places where water and rock meet are where painters, photographers, tourists, and lovers flock. These are holy spaces where beauty erupts and life emerges, where the two become one. All right, well, let's move on to the next pair, uh, night and day. Okay, so night and day are kind of this power combo, right? And there's something awesome about nighttime. Nothing like camping under a blanket of stars. Right? And there's also something great about the day, like most of life happens under the sun. And yet, once again, there is something majestic that happens when these two come together as one. Sunrise and sunset, as day and night meet up for their daily rendezvous and tryst. <clears throat> now, I used to live uh, back home at the base of this place called Rocky Butte. It was this hill, you kind of climb to the top, would overlook the city. And sometimes during the day, I'd like to go for an afternoon hike and just kind of walk up to the top. And it was almost always just empty, like faking of visitors, nobody's there. But you come back a few hours later as the sun's getting ready to go down, 
and suddenly it's like the whole town would come out. The park up at the top, you'd see families having picnics with kids running around and playing frisbee, whatever. You'd see lovers holding hands, kind of walking around the, the park. You would see um, friends kind of laughing and talking at all. Uh, cars kind of parked at the overlook. And you would smell the certain wafting aroma of some substance now legal in Portland. Right? <laughs> but once again, we are drawn to these places where the two become one. I don't want to sound crude here, but I've come to think of sunset as something almost like an orgasm across the sky. And I think many in our culture might flinch at that at first glance, right? But I wonder whether uh, that flinch arises because uh, our understanding and vision for sex has come to be shaped more by pornography and by the pursuit of personal pleasure, rather than seeing God's design of sex as something embedded within creation as a sign of the broader structure of the world that we live in and nature of the created order. The goal is not so much to sexualize creation as it is to creationize sex, so to speak, to reframe it back once again within the structure of the world that God has made. Shakespeare saw the romance in Sunrise. Uh, he sets his most classic you know, his famous scene, Romeo and Juliet, probably the most classic love scene in all of literature, the balcony scene against the backdrop of sunrise. So as Romeo approaches Juliet's window, he declares, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Leading up to this, Shakespeare has masterfully identified uh, Romeo with the nighttime. He comes concealed in the shadows of darkness, needing to remain uh, anonymous because of the uh, opposition that the family would have to their union. And he identifies uh, Juliet with the greater light of the sun, juxtaposed against the lesser light of Rosalind, the competing lover who's identified with the moon. And in this epic moment where uh, the two encounter one another, she comes out, you know, he approaches her window and she comes out onto the terrace. Uh, Shakespeare has the symbol of sunrise as the context for this union. And as the lovers come together, they hold hands, pledge their love to one another, and commit to move towards marriage. <clears throat> Shakespeare again masterfully sets this against the symbol of sunrise and it's an appropriate symbol this moment where the two come together as one and the glory that arises as a result. All right, well, let's move on to the third and final pair, heaven and earth. We kind of go back to heaven and earth here. Uh, this is perhaps the most significant of these three pairings. So ancient peoples looked to mountaintops. Think here of kind of the mountaintop experience. Uh, ancient peoples looked to mountaintops as the place where heaven and earth connect, as sacred space where earth and heaven meet up. And uh, we find this in the Bible as well, that Jerusalem is set atop Mount Zion. Moses and Israel encounter God most gloriously atop Mount Sinai. Elijah has his throwdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Jesus reveals his glory most intimately to his disciples, his most intimate disciples, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Garden of Eden is depicted as a mountaintop garden that sits atop the mountain of God. So mountaintop space is sacred space where earth and heaven connect <clears throat> as one. And we still today use this language of like the mountaintop experience. So we kind of look to the heights as a place that we go for a taste of transcendence, for perspective, for clarity, a site of spiritual retreat to get perspective on life and the world. 
And yet, it's something uh, more in the Bible, heaven and earth and the space. It's more than simply soil and ozone, right? That heaven and earth also speaks more profoundly. Uh, the heavens speak to a place identified with the heavenly presence of God, who envelops and surrounds and sustains and holds together his earth. It speaks to God's heavenly presence interwoven through the fabric of our earthly cloth, kind of holding our existence together. The universe hangs on God. And when Jesus teaches us as his followers to pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, what we're praying is for the collision of heaven and earth, for divine presence to penetrate our earthly reality as a place where now, when it's an image for where God's kingdom comes, and when that happens, it's a space where beauty erupts and life emerges for the world. All right, well, <clears throat> so what does all this have to do with sex? Right? Uh, everything. Right? So we move now to uh, the pinnacle of creation. As uh, at the climax of the scene, man and woman are, arrive as the fourth and final complementary pair. God saves the best for last and kind of moves in with a small-scale detail brush to uh, create man and woman. And here we see the climax of creation in the image of God poem the end of Genesis 1. Uh, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. <clears throat> what we see here is that uh, sex is an icon of creation. In this diversity and union, uh, they bear witness to the broader structure of the world that surrounds them. And what do I mean by sex here? Well, uh, two things. Uh, first off, um, I mean, something we might not think of at first. Uh, first, by sex, I mean our sexed identity as male and female, right? Because uh, sex is not only something we do, it's someone we are. And this can raise all sorts of controversial, loaded questions today about gender and identity and uh, intersex conditions. And these are important questions worthy of a lot of conversation. Um, but for the sake of time right now, just the one piece that I would say and kind of leave us with on, on, on this piece is I do think we see here that our bodies are sacred, that uh, there is actually something iconic interwoven in our sexed identity as male and female that speaks to the broader structure of the world that we inhabit. Okay, well, <clears throat> first, so by sex, I mean sex, sex, our sexed identity, uh, but second, by sex being an iconic creation, I also mean what most of us probably first think of, right? Afternoon delight, sexual union, the two becoming one. Uh, and we see that both our sexed identity as male and female and that diversity, as well as sexual union where the two become one flesh, both the union and the diversity bear witness as an icon of creation. I like the way um, N.T. Wright puts it here, uh, saying uh, he's commenting on Genesis 1 and how man and woman fit into that, that passage at the end. Since the man and the woman together are a symbol of something which is profoundly true of creation as a whole. The coming together of male and female is itself a signpost pointing to that great complementarity of God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. So sex, I believe, speaks to the diversity and union of creation. If I had more time, I'd want to look closer at that poem at the end of Genesis 1 uh, to see how it both emphasizes, especially in the original Hebrew, emphasizes both a unity or union, that God created the Adama, our corporate humanity, the human social body considered collectively as a whole in his image. Male and female, he created them. Diversity, that the 
Humanity is comprised of this diversity of men and women. If I had more time, I'd also want to look more at Genesis 2 and the creation of Adam and Eve and how uh, the creation story depicts uh, things starting with this union, Adam, and then God pulling the second from the first, even Adam. So there's this diversity. And then when the two come back, and the two are able to come back together as one, and when they do, this is how human life gets created and the human social body gets built. That diversity and union is embedded in the structure and the creation narrative of the nature of our humanity. Uh, but <clears throat> we see here that this diversity and union theme, it begins in creation, but it doesn't end here. Right? It doesn't stop Genesis. Uh, if you were to ask me, uh, man, what is the greatest source of hope that the gospel brings for the world? I think I just might say the phrase diversity in union. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if we jump ahead to the end of the biblical story, Revelation 21 and 22, the hope, the destiny that we are headed for, the hope of the world, is uh, when God, we see in this passage that God brings together heaven and earth as God and humanity come to dwell together as one. He gathers together east and west as the nations come streaming into the holy city to be reconciled to God. He brings together good folks and bad folks who are there not because of their accomplishment, but through nothing but the blood of the Lamb. And he brings together weak and strong as he wipes the tear away from the eyes of the exploited and the kings of the earth and those with power come to lay their crowns at the feet of earth's king. It is a picture of diversity and union of God gathering all of our disparate pieces and bringing them back together into a glorious united whole. And at the center of this picture is the image of a wedding, a wedding feast. What do weddings celebrate? They celebrate the two becoming one. And that's the same thing happening here is this God who loves to take the two and bring them together as one brings together all of these elements of his creation. I believe God loves doing this because it's bound up in who God is, that God is diversity and union, that from before the foundation of the world, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, an eternal communion of holy love. That embedded in God's very identity is both diversity and the particularity of persons and union as the one God. And diversity and union not, speaks not only to who God is, but also to the greatness of Jesus and what he's done. That Jesus is diversity and union. He takes the greatest of our polarities in divinity and humanity and pulls them together and unites them in his own person. That as our great mediator, Jesus grabs hold of our humanity like Superman and pulls it to his mighty chest and grafts our life into his and bears his life for us on our behalf. Jesus is diversity and union, and as we are united to Christ, we as the church become diversity and union. We are one body with many parts, one kingdom of every nation, tribe, and tongue, one spirit expressing and manifesting his presence through us through a diversity and multiplicity of gifts. The church is diversity and union. So I believe God embeds here in the structure of creation and within the intimacy of sex itself, uh, both our sex identity as male and female and sexual union, an icon or a window or a signpost to the hope of the world and the identity of the God who's made us. Okay, well, last movement here, the last thing I want to now spend some time looking at is, um, okay, well, what about the inversions? Uh, does this theme of kind of the structure of creation and diversity and union, uh, does it shed light on some of the tough topics around sex? And I believe it does. Um, 
once we have this kind of diversity and union in place, I believe it helps explain some of the prohibitions in Scripture. And in particular, what I want to look at here is how uh, Jesus says that the issue with divorce, the problem with divorce, is that it violates the union side of this equation. And how Paul says uh, that the issue with same-sex sexual activity is that it violates the diversity side of the equation. And how both go back to Genesis 1 and 2 to make their case and to, against the backdrop of the structure of creation. Uh, so let's take a look at each. So first, Jesus on divorce. Um, now, when we talk about divorce, um, I want to ask more like, why is divorce so painful? Uh, because uh, we could also, you know, why is divorce a problem? But if you're like me as a pastor, I look in our congregation and I, I know and have walked with so many families and uh, spouses who have been through divorce. Some of them through mistakes they made and things they would take back. Some of them through things that were done to them and they didn't want the divorce or they were left or abandoned. Uh, but <clears throat> no matter what the backdrop, I found it's an incredibly painful experience, especially for the one left. And why is it so painful? Uh, the Holmes Raw stress scale, it's used by the medical community to kind of gauge uh, stressful events and experiences that people go through. And it's interesting, divorce is about the second highest on the list. Uh, it ranks as being more stressful than imprisonment, uh, more stressful than a serious bodily injury or illness, uh, more serious than, or more stressful than the loss or death of one's friends or loved ones. And the only thing that uh, ranks more, high, more highly on the scale is the death of one's actual spouse. So the metaphorical death of the marriage is only outmatched in kind of the stress scale by the death of one's actual spouse. And why is that? Does this iconic nature of sex and union and all, does it speak to something about why divorce is so painful? Well, I believe it does. Uh, Jesus gets asked, Matthew 19, the Pharisees come and they're like, okay, hey, is it okay for uh, someone to divorce their wife for any and every reason? And Jesus responds uh, <clears throat> saying, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. All right, a few observations here. First, Jesus quotes both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That when Jesus wants to ground his sexual ethic, his discussion of marriage and divorce, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. So when he says, uh, made the male and female, he's quoting Genesis 1 there, and it's that image of God poem that comes at the uh, pinnacle of the narrative. Then when he quotes uh, about the two becoming one flesh, he's quoting Genesis 2, kind of the pinnacle of that passage, uh, where after the creation of Adam and Eve, it's given as the basis for marriage. And so Jesus goes back to the structure of creation to ground his sexual ethic. And the Pharisees actually push back on this. They're like, well, ho okay, hold on. If that's the case, Jesus, then how come Moses and the law said it was okay for someone to divorce? And... Um, and Jesus goes, well, yeah, God gave you that as an accommodation because of the hardness of your hearts, but that wasn't the original intention. So when Jesus wants to establish the icon, he doesn't go to the law, he goes back behind the law, back to the structure of creation as a whole. <clears throat> and it's also interesting, Jesus affirms both diversity and union in marriage. Uh, if Jesus wants to make his point about divorce, all he really needs is Genesis 2. Hey, they became one flesh, and you're violating that union. Let them not separate. But he actually gives, uh, he affirms both the diversity of marriage 
from Genesis 1, that God made them male and female. And then he affirms the union of marriage, that these two can come together as one flesh and become one. Okay, next observation here is that Jesus sees God as the one who unites, which kind of confronts, I think, in our culture, we tend to think of ourselves primarily and God's kind of on the sidelines. So we're the ones who, uh, you know, hired the caterer and said the vows and got the flowers ready and all, you know, we're the ones who got married to one another. And while that's true, Jesus actually goes, there's something the more profound going on here, that God is at work when the two become one flesh, uniting their lives together as one. So it's a real uh, union. And the word he uses here for join together, uh, it's like a word for a foundation being poured. It can be used for like glue or cement to create like a permanent bond between two objects. And I think a foundation is a great picture here because there's this sense uh, that the the two couples, their lives, their commitment to one another, it's forming the foundation for a life, a home, a family, a future, the generations that could come in the future to be built upon this foundation. I remember uh, being struck years ago uh, hearing uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, kind of the famous actress, and she was describing uh, her and her husband, Chris Martin, famous lead singer of Coldplay. Uh, they were getting divorced, and, uh, but she said, we, we're not calling it a divorce, um, we're calling it a conscious uncoupling, was the phrase. And you can empathize with what she was trying to get at, right? What she was trying to say is like, we're not gonna demonize each other in front of the kids. We're not gonna let this be this brutal, nasty battle. We're gonna try and love and support one another in this process. Um, so you can empathize with what she, where she's going there uh, at one level, but uh, at another level, I think there was a certain uh, naivety, you know, of, of saying that like, hey, if we just pulled the pieces apart carefully, then it doesn't have to hurt. And the reality is like, marriage and the uniting of lives sexually and all, it's not, we're not like Ikea furniture where we can just kind of pull the pieces back apart carefully and it's not painful. Uh, more apt image that comes to my mind is if you've seen the movie Office Space where the guys are out in the field smashing the printer, you know, and like where you're taking something that's one and whole and smashing and tearing it apart. And indeed, uh, Paul Trow would come back years later and say, you know, we did our best, and I think we did what we wanted to do well and treating each other well, but it was the most painful experience I've ever endured in my life. And so a divorce, I think, because of this reality of union that Jesus points to, that God is united, uh, it's, it's less of a conscious uncoupling and more of an agonizing amputation. That the two have become one flesh, one body is kind of the image, and there's a severing of one's body that's happening here. Well, and I think kids often get this better than their parents. That divorce, I think at the root, what we're saying here is the, the reason why divorce is so painful, I believe, is that root because it smashes the icon, right? Uh, and I do think kids often get this better than their parents. So when parents tend to talk about divorce, I found we tend to focus on uh, who gets weekends and who gets weekdays, uh, alimony and how much money, how are we gonna split up and divvy up the assets. But when kids talk about it, they talk about something deeper. Just to kind of quote from the book here. Uh, but children are more perceptive. They often reach for words to describe something deeper, some, something tumbling beneath the surface like Leviathan. The union that brought them into existence is unstable, precarious, dissolving. Something more foundational is crumbling in the ground beneath their feet. A rupture rippling through the rafters of the ceiling overhead, a crack fissuring through the heavenly skies as the universe unravels around them. And they're right. If marriage is an icon, a window into the structure of creation, 
then divorce displays an architecture built for collapse, a universe where detachment, dissolution, and disintegration have the last word. A house divided against itself cannot stand, and a crumbling couple images the collapse of our cosmic home. It is a blueprint for a world where division has the final say. Though we were created for union, it is an image of a universe where togetherness yields to separation, communion gives way to isolation, and we wind up alone at the end. Divorce is an icon of hell. We see here, and we see the beauty of what God has designed this thing for. I think it helps explain the pain when it gets smashed. Okay, well, uh, let's move on to uh, kind of the final. So if we're looking there at the union side, let's move on to the diversity side of the equation. Um, now we come to everybody's favorite dinner table conversation, gay sex, right? Obviously, the LGBT conversation is one of the most loaded in our churches and our culture today, um, and it's worthy of way more time, way more uh, discussion that, uh, that would be helpful. There are a lot of facets to this conversation uh, that we just don't necessarily have time for. I think questions surrounding um, attraction and orientation, uh, questions surrounding identity. Can one, I love Jesus, can I identify as a lesbian? Uh, those are very important, but beyond the scope of uh, what we're trying to get at today. What I want to focus on here is more uh, just simply action, activity, behavior. And if we saw just now that Jesus says the issue with divorce is it violates the union side of the equation, I think what we'll see here is that Paul says the issue with same-sex sexual activity is that it violates the diversity side of the equation. Now for Paul, creation, Genesis, and the structure of creation is clearly the backdrop for his argument. A couple of reasons. Um, I found Romans, so we're looking at Romans 1 here. Romans 1 is the most kind of famous passage uh, on this topic. It's where Paul describes most at length and in detail um, same-sex sexual activity, and most explicitly um, says it's not okay. Uh, but what's often missed, I think, in discussions in this passage is how Paul's drawing on this backdrop of Genesis and the structure of creation to make his case. So a quick look at that. Uh, three key ways I think we see that creation is clearly the backdrop. Uh, first, the language that Paul uses. Romans 1, it's saturated with image of creation imagery, that God is the creator who has been revealing himself since before the creation of the world, and yet we have worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. A second way is Paul uses seven key terms in very close proximity to one another that are um, allusions or citations to Genesis 1. So if you look at Genesis 1 here on the left and Romans 1 on the right, uh, this is the creation of humanity, the image of God part, and we see the same words uh, with mankind, image, likeness, birds, animals. Um, those five words, and, uh, and this was, and then the next two words are male and female in the next portion of the image. And uh, this was a Jewish way of like footnoting you know, like footnoting scripture or echoing or alluding to, or you might think of it as like a hyperlink back to Genesis 1. So Paul is setting the stage for his argument with Genesis as the backdrop. And the third thing, if we go on to uh, the specific uh, passage here, it says, even their women, Thalei, and there he's, uh, that's the other word from the image of God poem, where God created them male and female, exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way the men, arsonists, that's the seventh word echoing there, also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. The third creation piece here is um, that language of natural, unnatural. 
In short, this was uh, stock language, Greco-Roman Empire used for one thing and one thing alone, was same-sex sexual activity. Uh, and the issue at root, people had different reasons on why it was unnatural, uh, different Roman philosophers, for example, but what everyone uh, had in common was that um, what unnatural meant was that it violated something in the order of creation. <clears throat> okay, so we've got that as some of the backdrop, but to get Paul's main point here, I think it's also helpful then to recognize um, that Romans 1 is structured by these three exchanges. And so uh, the first two exchanges are vertical exchanges with God. And so uh, humanity, uh, we exchange the glory of God for idols. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then here in the third and final exchange, he moves to the horizontal, that we as men and women, men, we exchange men and women for one another as sexual partners. And when we catch that, I think we see the bigger point that Paul's making here. I don't think he's obsessed with homoeroticism or he's trying to uh, harp or focus there. I think he sees it as like an iconic window into something else. On a horizontal level, it mirrors the greater exchange that we've made on a vertical level. That we have traded the otherness of God for the same, we have traded the otherness of the creator for the sameness of creation. And similarly, we have traded the otherness of our sexual other for the sameness of one like ourselves. And that is a window into the image of God poem of Genesis 1 unraveling at the seams. It's a broader picture into humanity and creation unraveling in our distance from God. And <clears throat> Paul is, again, I think using this as a signpost for a bigger point that he's trying to make that applies to all of us. Uh, we see this in Romans 1 is also structured, not only these three exchanges, but these three giving overs, that after each exchange, God gives over to something. And these three give overs build bigger and bigger as his argument goes on. And after this third and final exchange, then what God gives us over to is this laundry list of 21 sins, including like greed and theft and pride and adultery and dishonoring your parents and idolatry and just this laundry list. I think Paul is not so much seeking to give a comprehensive list as he gives these 21 things, which is kind of a Jewish way, seven times three of saying, like it's just all gone down, downhill, downstream, right? And so Paul's target is not on the LGBT community, it's on all of us. And the, when people ask me today, like, do you think homosexuality is sin? Uh, my first response is usually, well, I think American sexuality is sin, right? And I think sometimes uh, we can think of uh, same-sex sexual activity. Sometimes I worry that um, when we get so focused on this topic, it can kind of be like focusing on a leaky faucet on the Titanic. Like, yes, there's water getting into the ship through it. We got much bigger issues on our hands. Like how we as a culture and all look to sex, what we look to it for, our entire vision and approach to what it's all about is a bigger issue. And then Paul's even looking broader here than sex and sexuality. He's looking at... Uh, the unraveling of humanity in our distance from God. Well, <clears throat> when we go back to the icon here, well, what does the icon point us to? I think the beauty of the icon points us to the fact that God is pro-diversity, right? that God is for diversity. And that can sound ironic in a conversation on sex because often when we think about diversity in the context of sex today, we tend to think about it as a diversity of desire, of preference, of taste. What we see here is I think God is pro an even deeper kind of diversity, bodily diversity, uh, what the philosophers might call ontological diversity, a diversity of being, that our bodies are sacred and they matter and that there is something in our identity as male and female and the ability of the two to become one flesh. It's a space where beauty erupts and life emerges. It speaks to God's heartbeat and love and value for created diversity in the structure of his 
world. There's something iconic to the diversity of sexual union. And I think here on an iconic level, then the issue with same-sex sexual activity is that it becomes an icon of anti-diversity. Um, it inverts this element of the image of the icon. Okay, well, in summary, zooming out, uh, everything we talked about as a whole, uh, I'd say this. The good things of the gospel inform and help us understand the distortions and the prohibitions and the pain points. Right? I think when we see that God is all about union, that he wants to be with us as his people forever, that we begin to see why divorce is so painful. It shatters the image that union was, and marriage was meant to bear witness to. When we see the faithfulness of God, that God is not going anywhere. He's committed to us publicly forever. He's coming after us. He's, there's no fear in his love because he's not going to abuse us or abandon us or betray us. Then we begin to see why adultery is so heartbreaking. It actually violates and fractures the image that sexual union was intended to bear witness to. When uh, we think of things like premarital sex or cohabitation, uh, I see, you know, if adultery is a betrayal of the covenant, I think premarital sex, the issue is a refusal to enter covenant. And that becomes an issue when we see that God is a covenant God, that God commits to us before he unites with us. He's not ashamed to call us his own and to tell the world, I'm going to want to be with you forever. <clears throat> when we think of... Uh, as well, maybe just a, a closing nuance here too. I also think it's important in this conversation, uh, we talk about like singleness, that sometimes uh, one danger or, you know, or fear I have sometimes talking about this too quickly is that um, you can kind of, you might walk away with the sense that like, oh, you gotta have sex then in order to bear witness to heaven and earth and it's meaningful, you know, you have to, that's a lie of our culture. Like you have to have sex in order to have a meaningful, full life and existence. And that's a lie from the pit of hell, right? Jesus was single. Paul was single, so if you're single, you're in pretty good company, you know. And Jesus not only was single, he lived the most fully human life ever in the history, existence of the world, right? So we don't need to have sex to uh, have a meaningful existence. Um, one of the ways I like to think about it with Jesus is that Jesus is both the great bachelor and the glorious groom, right? That Jesus gives up sex on a horizontal level in order to give his life for uh, this union of Christ with his church as his bride on a vertical level. I think the reality is that uh, we can have the re reality without the sign, right? Like you can have the thing that sex is designed to point to you without the pointer itself. Right? You can get the movie without the sneak preview. Uh, that, and yet there is something powerful. So I think in the New Testament we see that singleness and marriage are treated as uh, equally valid, powerful, legitimate vocations, both that can be used to steward towards the glory and the kingdom of God in uh, significant, meaningful ways. Some passages seem to almost elevate singleness uh, over marriage in some ways. Um, but big picture, regardless, single married, what we see, I think, is that uh, the icon of sex, God's designed it as a window into the beauty of the structure of creation. And I think even some hints we've seen here of other places uh, I'd want to go that it's also a window into the identity of God, the nature of salvation, and his purposes for uniting us with himself forever. On that note, let's have some table discussion. Um,
Just turn, what do you find most beautiful and compelling about God's vision for sexuality? I think often we get to this topic, we can focus on the hard questions, the negative stuff, but I found it's powerful and helpful to spend a little time diving into what about the good stuff? How does this point to beautiful things about who God is and the nature of the gospel? And after that, if anything else from the talk here you guys want to discuss or question, and then we'll come back for some uh, interact Q&A and interaction afterwards.